Welcome to our next episode of the 5 Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the 5 Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Okay, friends, welcome back to another episode of Performance Matters. Bob Mosier here, as I was introduced in the intro. It is wonderful to have you all back. We are so excited about all that 2020 holds. This year, we're going to be actually having a different theme with some of our particular subtopics you've heard us going to before. We've got the methodology matters. We've had technology matters, those types of things. This year, we're going to actually be fortunate enough to bring some very, very special guests in and have sort of a different look at strategy matters or industry matters kind of an approach. And boy, I can't think of a better way to kick this off than with a dear friend of mine for years. He's been my mentor, one of my heroes in the industry talked to him a bunch of times about how, in many ways, I owe my livelihood to this man for what he did for the early days of computer training. Our dear friend, Elliot Maisie, welcome. Great to have you here. Well, Bob, absolutely an honor. And for everybody listening, Bob is my mentor, my <laughs> friend. I think what we ought to know in the world of learning is that mentorship is never a one-way process. Mm. We give to get and we get from giving. So brilliant. it's two ways. And so much of that has been the many meals the many wonderful times we've had together. And, and a part of that's been these great conversations. And I'm, I'm excited for hosting one today. Uh, you're one of the few people in this world that I trust to just wing it. <laughs> we're, and we're going to kind of go at that in some ways, because so much of what we get out of this is our back and forth. And I'd really love to hear your feeling, Elliot. Let's just kind of ground ourselves in a view I think you bring to this industry that few do. And you, you have been fortunate enough to, through the consortium and other work you've done, the many conferences you host, uh, the journeys across this globe you take, and the work you've done from public to private to government and so on, you see across the industry like no one else, in my opinion. And, and in that, you've seen where we've come, maybe some of the wrong turns we've taken, how we've gotten here intentionally, and sometimes by kind of tripping over ourselves. Friend, let's start out with this. Give us an idea about this, in your view, how we kind of got here, and, and then sort of where it's taken us. Well, if we go back and, you know, I'm about to be the young age of 70 in May and 50 years in the field, and I think about halfway through my career, Bob. Um, (laughs) But if we go back, if we even go back to the beginning of my time in this field, what our field was about was very specific job training. Hmm. Everything we did in learning and development was really about training somebody to do a job to a very specific set of criteria, and for the most part, to do it either in a one-size-fits-many, or in fact, where we've sort of come long, long circle around, to do it in a on-the-job, shoulder-to-shoulder, very personalized way. Hmm. Over the years, our workplace changed, and it changed what the learning field was. Bob, you were very, very much in the middle of the growth of the computer training industry, particularly once PCs came out. Because suddenly we weren't necessarily training people for jobs, but now we were training them for systems, for capabilities, for capacities, and we were training them on tools that 
may or may not be used directly for specific jobs. And so it put a lot more pressure on us. We had to accept a lot more ambiguity. You know, we mm -hmm. both were involved in training people on the 2,875 parts of Excel. And then we used four parts of that. Or, I mean, there were a whole series of other elements that went into that process. But then we've evolved even more because we, we moved from that very computer training focus to where work in the workplace became much more agile, where things evolved to where now we were teaching people for readiness. We were teaching them to get ready to do something, even if they're not doing it yet, even if the organization is not doing it. And we were teaching them as, and you've done a lot of contribution to this thing, to teach people to go into a workflow or work environment and need to learn as that changed and mm -hmm. as that evolved. And all the way through that, I think we've made the shift from developing to a job to also developing a capacity for the individual. How mm -hmm. do we build them? And then how do we build the collective of the workforce? Now, I will say tomorrow is an interesting question. Just last night, I sat with a number of workplace learning leaders from around the world working for labor departments. And I was there with McDonald's and a few other corporations. And they kept asking us, okay, what do we need? What does the worker of tomorrow need? Yeah. And I think they were wanting us to say something, well, they need to learn coding or they need to learn <laughs> and what we said to them was, we don't really know. What we do know is that we need a worker who comes ready to work, ready to communicate, and ready to learn how to perform in an environment that's going to change pretty rapidly. It was not what our government colleagues wanted to hear. But yet, I think they got it in the end. And so I think we're at a inflection moment, Bob, where... We need to look at what the future is. And there are a lot of uncertainties and opportunities there. And once again, the learning field is going to have to be pretty agile to adjust, adapt, stretch, and create that. So let me ask your view on a couple of things that I think you initiated over the years. And I don't know, I think we both agree that I don't know if our industry has embraced them as much as we'd hope or you would hope. I'd like to get your feeling about why. You were one of the first to, in my opinion, coin personalized learning, mm -hmm. fingertip knowledge. Uh, years ago, you pushed us in big data. The Amazons of the world, the Facebooks of the world, the AI that was emerging out of those things, not learning, but in these other areas, natively got that, got their arms around it. And then learning technology, I think you can latch onto that. I think our learner would argue that the technology in their palm and apps to get from place A to B or watch their health or even play games and such. And then they look at learning technologies, you know, what we call cutting edge, if you will, LXP stuff and these acronyms we're throwing around. I think the learner would laugh at the difference. Why do you think we as an industry have struggled with taking these things from an obvious reality? Personalized learning made perfect sense big data we all got, it was in our lives, and so on. Where, where do you think the struggle comes from, Elliot, for us? And, and how could we maybe get beyond that or be better at it? 
Well, you know, the problem, Bob, and you've, you've seen this at the various conferences that you and I have helped host and keynote, is it's much easier to talk about doing something versus <laughs> doing it. You've probably all gone to a workshop on how learning is changing and had the person get up and use a PowerPoint presentation to tell you how learning has changed. Right, you know? right. So there is a delta, there's a gap between our aspiration to be different and the extent to which we are tribally locked in. Many of us teach the way we were taught. Many organizations use the word agility, but the structure doesn't promote that. And I think one of the really interesting ones, and it does go back to data, is that we've looked at all the wrong data. And I, look, I could beat up Kirkpatrick, but that he's not the problem. What we have is that we often try to measure our delivery rather than measure our impact. Yeah. And Great if point. we were to measure our impact, and if we had really good and, and trustable and immediate data, we would do it very differently. So let's just imagine that you ran orientation at a company and you literally were able to get a week after an orientation program, seeing the extent to which a week later those individuals had integrated into their, into their workplaces, they felt comfortable being there, they were aspiring to X, and you might actually start to say, well, I got to this point, but I would actually like to be better. What could I change about what I do? And I think our problem is that we still are in the publishing mode in work. Mm. So we know how to tell our stories. Yep. We know how to put up our slides. We even know how to have them turn to each other and do a, a work activity together. Yep. But we're not really basing it on what personalized learning is all about. And, you know, thank you for giving me some of the credit. Uh, Sir Ken Robinson, I think, is probably the one who's pushed that concept along with us pretty strongly. And what yeah. we would argue in, in those situations is very simple. Let's teach them what they really need to know now. Let's index it against what they know already. Use the language. Yeah. Let's prepare them so they're now able to learn it more at that moment of need or change. And let's look at from a user design point of view, when am I giving them information, examples that aren't sticking? They're mm. just not sticking. And Love so that. to me, the probably best example of this, if I had to give you uh, where, where we're wrong, I'm gonna ask everybody on the podcast to do something. If you've ever flown an airplane as a passenger, raise your hand. And I now have that sensory model that almost every hand is up. Yeah. Think about when that person gets up and says, I now want to show you how to put on a seatbelt. <laughs> and then this is really important to get the seatbelt and then the oxygen mask. Now, I argued with a plane that most people know how to do that. But here's what I would do. And I actually suggested this to two airlines. I want them to now, first of all, many of the other times the seats have screens on them. Point on the screen in front of you where the exits are. Yeah. So let's go immediately to a simulation. Yep. And B, turn to say hello to the people next to you because if they freeze, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, try raising that with the FAA. No yeah, less right, the, right. the legal department of an airline, but... 
a few airlines, Virgin got very fancy dancy and had a nun dancing and boy, they got their wrists slapped in that, that yeah. process. But some of what stops us is that we're publishers who are addicted to how we did it yesterday. And we yeah. don't have any numbers that drive us to make it more efficient, more optimized, more personalized, more sticky. And all the work that you've done is timing is everything. Boy, that content is good, but why today? Uh, oh, let, let, let's pivot on this content a little bit, Elliot, if you don't mind. One of my favorite things to do with you, my friend, is you're gracious enough to invite me into your curation lab. And, and I so enjoy that because it is a fresh look at a topic. Again, we've we bounced around for a while, user-generated content, blah, 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 blah. But I think to your point, it, it makes great fodder for a keynote or a conference, but so few can roll back the covers, I think. Can you share with us a bit about your, you've run it a number of times, to a packed house, an international house. Can you share with us some of your takeaways from that lab? What's the reality of content curation? Because it, it's the backbone of, a, of personalized. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it is. Stuff, it, it's getting us away from our, you know, everything's a course, everything's a PowerPoint. Yeah. What are your takeaways from that? Well, let me, once again, I try to use examples outside of our, our learning world. Everybody who's ever stayed at a hotel, please raise your hand. Once again, <laughs> everybody's hand probably went up. And you've probably been in a room and you turn on the TV and because it's a different cable channel, you can't figure out where your news or your real estate show is. And you suddenly realize there are 270 channels there. Mm. But my problem is I'm often in that area. And then the weather says that there's a hurricane coming in Chattanooga County. And I don't know what county I'm in. So I don't know whether the duck or like. Well, this is what curation is about, Bob. Meaning mm -hmm. that the learner has an avalanche and an overwhelming panorama of content. The key is not to give them more, but to give them the right stuff yeah. in the right format, at the right moment, and then to make sure you get the right impact with that. So mm. I use the word optimize. Now, our dilemma is that nobody owns curation in organizations. Maybe, and it's always a difficulty, somebody will, will say, oh, bye, you know, we're using LinkedIn Learning for curation. And I go, no, you're using LinkedIn Learning for their collection of content yes. and that's great yeah but they're not curating the pdfs from the safety department yep they're not curating the ted talks that people are watching so we don't yet have a curator and probably i can think of maybe five major fortune 500 companies that have a curator and the other piece of this is that this goes back to people learn differently. Some person really wants to see a bulleted 16 point step-by-step. -step. Some want to see an infographic. Some want to watch a video. Some want to have a kind of a job aid that's right next to them. And in the old days, they were lucky to get one. Yeah. And yeah. now if they go on to Google or Bing and they type in the topic, they're liable to get 150. And some of it is crap. Yep. Some of it violates the standards of their organization. Some of it is fake news. And some of it is awesome. But 
There's no Yelp for content. There's no open <laughs> table for content. So this is the overwhelming element. And bluntly, nobody can lock the gate anymore because mm, right. even if you build a firewall, they've got a device you know, in yep. their pocket that yep. doesn't stop at your firewall. So I actually believe where we may get to this, Bob, is to provide more and more curation at the individual level rather than at the enterprise. Love that. Where in a sense, the learner has a curation tool and then they wire in filters and recommendations and other things from their their organization. I mean, I even had a, a conversation with somebody graduated with an MBA from a very good M- MBA program, they were hoping their MBA program would be an injected curation filter hmm. into management content. So in the future, if they needed to learn about the impact of data standards out of Europe, and there were 42 items, their MBA program would help them pick which of those items might be the best one. And that's a different day. That's a... An open archaeology of curation, but we are going there and the marketplace is going there. So like this perfect segue to unfortunately what probably have to be our last topic because of our time, but you are being challenged by or asked to write a book. I love the title, Everyday Learning, which, <laughs> which again, I think it's a great bow to put around this discussion because all you've talked about and shared curation, the whole deal, in the end, and that, and that utopia you just described to that learner is about everyday learning. Mm-hmm. Can you share us a bit about the title, so to speak, if you yep. will, and, and give us some insights into your thinking around uh, where that book will take us? Well, I've always been impressed by conversations about lifelong learning. Peter Senge has been one of my mentors on that. And lifelong learning is really good, but you wanna know something? I wanna learn something every day. Mm-hmm. I wanna learn something every day. I've been impressed when I've had opportunities to interview CEOs. Uh, I interviewed Jack Welch just as he was leaving GE. And he said, the reason he built the learning culture is he wanted to work at a place when you woke up in the morning, you knew that that day you would learn something for work from another employee. And by the end of the day, you will have shared with another employee something that helped them learn something. Mm. And that was why he hired one of the first chief learning officers, Stephen Kerr, and built Crotonville, but yet we still are primarily in the business of creating episodic learning. It's an episode. It could be a webinar like this. It could be an e-learning program. It could be face-to-face classroom or the like. And those things are important and they're not going away. Hmm. But I really believe that what makes an individual and an organization amazing is when every day when you come to work, you learn something. I was very impressed. I was uh, an, in uh, a airline in the Middle East, and um, they actually have a model that before they get on the flight, the flight attendants get together and they go over who's on the plane, what are the languages that they speak, and who speaks those languages? Is there anybody who needs somebody with sign language? who drinks or doesn't drink, so we don't offer them. And literally, they are starting every flight with a everyday learning moment (laughs) about that reality. Our problem is that everyday learning doesn't often realize something that we monetize. 
So we mm -hmm. don't know how to buy everyday learning products, but the reality is the most everyday learning device that we have is that small thing called a phone or a yeah. tablet, but that phone that you touch glass, and we've only been touching glass there for about 12, 14 years, but your fingers become curiosity devices and you yeah. look something up. And maybe right now you said, was he talking about Emirates Airlines? Curiosity might be triggered in the middle of a presentation or a conversation. Yeah. That's what it's about for me. Yeah. And I think it weaves together a lot of the great work that you have been doing about those five moments of need. I think it weaves together a lot of conversations about the individual learning apart from what the organization has given them. Mm. And in a world that is changing as rapidly as it is, it also builds in that curation because part of everyday learning is to figure out not what new stuff is, but what to trust. Where do I go for my perspective? Yeah. And I think yeah. everyday learning then leads to opportunities to safely fail, mm. opportunities to have authentic conversations, even with people who are quite different in approach or philosophy or politics than, than we are. And finally, I think it is how do we weave what we do in everyday learning to extend what we do in episodic learning? Yep. So it extends what happened in that class. I mean, I remember way back, Bob, I went to a Xerox typesetting course. Now I'm, <laughs> I'm taking us way back when I had gigantic, big old, all caps yeah, word processing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And it was the most amazing course because they sent a note to my manager, who happened to be me, but to say, <laughs> when Elliot came back from the course, here are four things to ask them and make them do when they came back. And mm. do you want to know, that was probably the best yep. follow-up for transfer. And I am not seeing an awful lot of that anymore. So everyday learning isn't in opposition to classroom and design learning. It's an extension and a multiplier of it. Wow. Hey, my friend, as always, so enjoy the conversation, so value your friendship and our relationship. Congratulations on the 50 years. I've been blessed to be a part of some of that. Can't wait for the next 50. Can't thank you enough for being here, and we'll do other ones together. Thank you very much. This is Elliot and yours in learning from here, Bob. Thanks, friend. Take care. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.